All right, then. Let's go back to Genesis 22, where we left off last night. I'll try again not to hold you too late. I, I did pretty good last night, I thought. I didn't go over much. I know when it's every evening, it can get tiresome, so we'll try to, to move on through some of this and, uh, and break on time. Chapter 22, and it came to pass after these things, after all the, the situation with uh, the tests and trials with Sarah and Abraham and Ishmael, and then finally Isaac being born, quite some time down the line, uh, it appears that Isaac was a young man when this occurred in chapter 22. It just says after, it came to pass after these things. It doesn't date it, but uh, other ways of dating show that Isaac may have been... Uh, certainly late teens, and they have been older than that. But God did test Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. It just seems like Abraham never quite gets off the hook. Now, he's probably, well, he was 100 when Isaac was born, and now if Isaac was a teenager or older, Abraham had to have been around, to, let's say, roughly 120 years old when this happened. And God's going to test him again. He was to be the father of the faithful. He was to be one that the people of all ages could look back to as an example of how they should be and come to be. Uh, and if he was wanting to fulfill the jobs that, or the job that God had given him, he had to be thoroughly tested first. So God said to Abraham, or called him, and he said, Behold, I'm here. What do you got to say? I'm ready to listen. Oh, that we could have that attitude all the time. <laughs> you know, you start reading God's Word, and sometimes there's things in there you don't necessarily want to hear because they go contrary to the way you're thinking or acting. And sometimes, I think it's even worse. When you're, when you're reading the Bible yourself, you can kind of skip on over that or, or avoid it and go read something that sounds better to you. But it's even worse when you get in sermonettes and sermons and Bible studies and they jam it down your throat whether you want to hear it or not. Uh, but we should have a ready mind, a, a mind ready to listen, a mind ready to learn. And if we have a humble, meek, teachable attitude, then it shouldn't really bother us when they touch on things that are still a problem to us, whatever they might be. Because... We want to grow, we want to change, we want to overcome, and we look upon God's Word and are in fear and tremble before it. So we don't get our backs up and get defensive then when something in God's Word, uh, through the mouth of a man, uh, even corrects us because we have the right attitude. And we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and something is pointed out that shows that we are less than righteous, we should be thankful that that's pointed out so that we then have a chance to do something about it. But instead, so often human nature, and I've tried to get in the way, and I think, well, he's just talking to me. Um, that's personal, or whatever it might be, you know. And uh, sometimes people say, boy, I, I thought you were talking to me. I say, well, you know, a lot of times I can say, you never crossed my mind. 
I was thinking about something else or someone else or something in 20 years ago or 10 years ago where I remembered that thing, but <laughs> it seems that problems recur with human beings over and over and over again because we all have our human nature and it's about the same in all of us. Uh, but usually, if you're saying it about some somebody, a current situation, they don't come and say, I thought you were talking about me. Usually, if that's the case, they know it and they don't want to talk to you about it anyway. Because <laughs> so, it did bother them and it did get to their ego or whatever. So, you know, usually anything that is said applies to probably at least half of the people sitting there, and it might have might be a lot higher percentage than that to one degree or another, you know. So don't take it personal in the wrong way. We need to take it personal in the sense that we all need to be seeking those things that need change so that we can overcome and be like God. Uh, but don't take it personal in the sense of, you know, they're after me. They're trying to get me because that's not, it's counterproductive. It doesn't do us any of us any good. But sometimes it's hard to make that distinction and we take things personal in the wrong way. And then we just get our back up and get our nose talked out of joint and, and uh, it doesn't help. What was intended to help sometimes creates problems because of our attitudes. <clears throat> anyway, he was of ready mind to receive whatever God had to offer. He didn't know whether it was God said to him, Abraham, Abraham didn't know. Is he here to correct me? Is he here to bless me? Is he here to, you know, what's he here for? But he said, whatever you got for me, here I am. He probably didn't dream, I think, in any way that he was about to be told what he was about to be told. Now, when, when God appears to you, you kind of wonder why. Because that doesn't happen very often, does it? So when he does, ooh, wonder what's coming down. He said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, he did have a son, Ishmael, but Hagar and Ishmael had been sent away, so he only had the one son still at home that he could have done anything with. So in that sense, it's his only son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, he had to rub it in a little bit, your only son and the son whom you love, and get you to the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell you of. What kind of emotional impact would that have if Christ appeared in your house and said, uh, take your son, go to Mount Moriah and offer him for a burnt sacrifice? Uh, how would you react, Derek? <laughs> you know, how would your parents react? Scotty, where's Scotty? He's not, he's not here. To, oh, he had to work tonight, so I don't think he'd like the idea much either, do you? I don't imagine his dad and mom would probably like the idea a whole lot. I understand the, the heavy emotion here. 
that would hit you. If God himself told you to take your son, your only son, I know you love him, take him anyway, and you had, none of us have waited that long to have a son, probably. Well, some of us may have never had a son, might have had all daughters or whatever, but what I mean is, uh, like he waited, and God kept promising, 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 nothing happened, nothing happened. He waited for decades and decades, 40, 50 years, and God finally went through it, set the date, it happened, he grew up, now God appears out of nowhere and says, I'd like for you to saddle up tomorrow and take your son up to Mount Moriah and kill him as a burnt offering. Is that a test? You know, we, we shake and quail at small tests and trials and tribulations that come upon us. Oh, how can I handle this? Oh my, this is so bad, what I have to go through. And in our own little world, I guess sometimes some things seem like pretty big deals. But he hasn't asked us to do something like this. Now, Mount Moriah was a mountain at Jerusalem. Uh, you can read that in Second Chronicles 3.1. So he was to take him up to Jerusalem and kill him there. Now, he argued with God over whether Sodom and Gomorrah should be destroyed or not. And actually kind of went to the wall pretty hard about it, didn't he? Six or seven times lowering the number. So he bargained over that, a city that obviously, from the fruits of it all, really should have been destroyed, and yet argued, Abraham argued about it, and now it comes to go kill your son, there's no argument. No argument, whatever. Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place which God had told him. Now, why didn't he argue here when he had before? Maybe he realized by now he had grown in maturity and understanding of God, and he realized in thinking about it how silly it must have sounded to argue with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. And maybe he had learned through these things to trust God's judgment. And maybe he had waited even more years for his son to be born, and then an absolute miracle occurred where both his and Sarah's bodies were healed, so it could even happen. And maybe through all these things, Abraham had been learning. He wasn't a perfect man, hadn't been from the beginning, and yet the things that he had been through, I suspect, caused him to understand God a whole lot better and to understand his place in God's plan a whole lot better. So maybe the reason he didn't put up any objection here was because he had learned over time, to trust God with his health, with his wealth, with the health of his child, with everything that was Abraham, he had learned. Now, maybe God wanted to find out how much he had learned, so he put this upon him. 
Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. So he had three days to think about this while he traveled with Isaac. God had instructed him to do it, and it was a three-day walk. I doubt if he thought about much else. I doubt if he slept a whole lot at night uh, thinking about what was going on. Abraham said to his young men, Abide you here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Not only that, he had kept it to himself. He hadn't told the young men with him uh, what was going on, obviously, or he wouldn't have said this. We're just going up here to worship. And that, I'd say that that's pretty indicative of worship of God, to be willing to do what he was going to do. And certainly a burnt offering and a sacrifice to God is a form of worship, and in this case a very high form. So Abraham took the wood uh, of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. He hadn't told Isaac what was happening either. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? You begin to kind of wonder what's going on here. Maybe he had a sneaking feeling. I, I don't know. But he understood that there was something missing, so he was, Well, well what, what's the answer here, Dad? Abraham said, My son... God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So he went both of them together, walked on up the mountain, came to the place, came to the place which God had told him of on Mount Moriah, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. I think most kids would have rebelled by now at some point in this process. Hey, Dad, you know, why are you tying me up? How many, how many young men would stand still for that when their father told them, now stand there, son, I'm going to have to bind this rope around you. And you began to realize what was happening. And burnt offerings or child sacrifice was not unheard of in those days. There were uh, peoples around that did that. So Isaac was probably aware of the cultures around him and how that had been done before. So he began to catch on. He had been taught a great deal by his mother and by his father about God, about obedience to God, about honoring father and mother. He had learned a very, very deep respect for God and for his father, certainly at least for his father, uh, in order to stand there realizing what was about to happen and to go along with it. Does that give us a clue about our relationships and what we ought to be 
striving for and seeking in our family communication and so on. You know, in most families, I think, in America today, it's all they can do to basically stay in the same house and fight over the cars and the TV and uh, who they date and, and all these things and, you know, what kind of designer clothes need to be had and uh, do I do the dishes and do I milk the cow and this and that. Uh, these these are the arguments that go through American households. Probably that's about as deep as a lot of it gets. Now, when God said, "You take these commandments and you put them on your doorposts and you teach them to your children day and night and you teach them about Me," I don't know whether we even begin to grasp what God meant by that. I think an example like this should begin to open our eyes a little bit at the attention we should be giving our children, the time that they ought to have. You know, you can all sit and watch TV and eat popcorn together alone, because that's what it is, and you don't learn a whole lot about God. I'm not saying that we shouldn't relax a little bit with a proper program sometimes, but I wonder if we're giving the kind of attention that God would have us give to teaching and being with and knowing our children and they us. But you know, once they've been inoculated with the entertainment and the music and the ways, the morals, the thinking of this world, it's difficult for them Oh, another Bible study, Iro. Another lecture from Dad and Mom. Did we fail them when they were little bitty? And not spending the time with them and teaching them and setting an example. And I don't mean lecturing, but going over some of these things and talking about them and learning about them and understanding real stories instead of fictional stories on the TV or the movies. I wonder if we missed the boat a long time ago, and now we're dealing with the pulls of the world that they have, and we're dealing with us being busy and, you know, all kinds of things, and Satan has created a busy, busy, busy society. And we're having to fight the results of that. Father has to work, mother has to work, they have to be gone from home to work, kids are left at home alone a lot. That's just the way our society is. And what's the solution to that? God would have us in rural life, family working together to produce food for the family. That's what he originally intended. And we've gotten so far from that, it isn't even funny. But we need to get back to it as much as we possibly can. And I realize right now in our present circumstance, that's hard to do. Because we still have to go to town and work to pay the taxes and to buy food and things that we can't raise here. <clears throat> because we don't have those millennial conditions that I think God is going to give us. But when I look at an example like this, I can't imagine anybody passing this test.
Abraham or Isaac or any of us, uh, there must have been some very, very deep bonds there between Abraham and Isaac. And God chose to work through Isaac. He'd already said Ishmael because of Hagar and because of the genes that came together that particular night that Ishmael was going to be a wild ass of a man. And the Arab peoples today are basically that. But he said the whole world would be blessed through Isaac. So Isaac was a special kid. And God had worked for decades and decades before the boy was even conceived. So when the set time came, I'm sure the best of the genes in Abraham and Sarah, God made sure, were on the top burner. And that that's how that conception occurred, so that he would be uh, in the likeness of Abraham. So, yes, this was an exceptional situation. But I think it gives us something to shoot for, both as parents and as kids, to have the right kind of respect for God and our parents. Uh, when it says, honor your father and mother, it, it's one of the primary ten commands of God. It's as important as the Sabbath being one of the ten. I don't know whether we think about it that way or not. But it is. It's as important as not lying and stealing and committing adultery. It's as important as the other commands. Maybe the four dealing more directly first with God could be in one sense put ahead of it, not putting anything ahead of God. And Abraham was in that position. If he had held Isaac back, Isaac would have been his God. That would have been idolatry. So he was in a place where he had to keep the first commandment or die. And honoring our Father in heaven is far more important than honoring our parents here on the earth. We need to understand that honoring our husband in heaven and our Father in heaven stands way above honoring our physical parents on this earth. And if God tells us something to do here, and it conflicts with our blood relatives on this earth, we have to put God first. That's why he said you've got to be willing to give up father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, land, homes, whatever. Don't put anything ahead of God. And that can be a tough one. Abraham passed the test. Well, I say that. We haven't read the story yet. Maybe he didn't. Let's move on. They told him God would provide a lamb for a burnt offering, so they went both of them together, and they came to the place. Abraham stretched forth his knife, verse 10, or forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. So he got the knife in hand. Isaac's tied up. He got the wood around him that could be set to fire after his throat had been sliced and his blood poured out on the altar. And he was in a fix. So Abraham picked up the knife and was about ready to slide it across his throat and kill him. And the angel of the Lord came to him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, said twice this time, I didn't just say Abraham, 
wanted to get his attention quick, I guess. Uh, and he said, I'm still here. <laughs> Got anything to say? Uh, he was still, in a, I, I, I say that lightly in a way, uh, I'm sure he was hoping for some intervention of some kind. Yeah, here I am. And he said, lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do you anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So obviously, it was known what Abraham was thinking. And he wasn't going to go just that far and then stop. He intended to go ahead and kill Isaac. He raised his hand to actually do it before God intervened. That reminds me a little bit of what I was saying the other day about timing. How long do we give God to answer our prayer before we try to solve it other ways? Now, Abraham had lived a long life by this time, and he had tried to solve things other ways by lying about his wife, by accepting Hagar uh, and having a son that way when Sarah uh, suggested that. He'd taken things into his own hands at times. And those things hadn't worked out real well. So by this time, he had matured. He had learned by the things he'd suffered. He learned by the mistakes he'd made. And I think the man had changed a lot. So God said, now I know. He'd been watching him for a long time. And he said, back here, we read last night, I think it was, but I know Abraham, and I know what he'll do, and I know what his family will do. But he gave him this one last final huge test. And he says, now I know you fear me. There's no question left in my mind whatsoever. And I think we can see how Abraham and Isaac are in an Old Testament type, a pattern of what the father and the son would later do. But Abraham was a type of our father in heaven and, and uh, Isaac a type of Christ. And thankfully, we have that kind of ancestors back there that we have the bloodlines of if we're the seed of Abraham physically. And if we are not, if we are mixtures or of Gentile extraction or whatever, that is overcome by the fact that we can take on correct genes through baptism and the inception or the uh, of God's or the conception and inception of God's Holy Spirit. But that can change us. Let's say we have been an Arab physically and we're a wild ass of a man and personality, and whatever we might have been. God's Spirit can come and dwell in us so that we no longer walk as an Ishmaelite, but now we begin to walk as Christ walked. So you see, it doesn't matter whether we are physically of the bloodline of Abraham and Isaac or not. They were only a type of something even bigger to come, the Father in heaven giving his Son for us, and then their spirit coming to dwell in us and change our attitudes to transform us from what, whatever we might have been into what they are so that we become Jews inwardly. 
So from the inside out, we are converted, changed. We no longer think like Gentiles, if that's what we were, or carnal Israelites, if that's what we were. Now we are being transformed to be like God. And this is a type back here. And that's why they had to go through this heavy test that they went through. And we begin to see a little bigger picture of what conversion is all about. It, it's like changing your very genetic makeup. Changes your entire way of thinking and acting. And it should do that over a period of time. So that we don't think the way we used to think. And I think Abraham had gone through an awful lot, and he didn't think like he used to think anymore. So, here was a man who lied at times. Here was a man who did things that weren't wise and he shouldn't have done. But he learned, and he changed. And he became truly, I don't know, how, how could you say there was ever a faithful man more faithful than Abraham? He said John the Baptist, Christ said, was the most righteous man around or had ever been. But I don't know that he was more faithful than Abraham. Of course, he was willing to stand up for God's way and get his head cut off in the process. So um, he trusted God pretty well, too. Now, Isaac didn't die here. He had to be the, the, he had to follow the line to produce Israel. John the Baptist's job was basically done. And uh, he lost his head. But I think he did it honorably. I think he passed that test. There's no doubt in any of our minds, I don't think that John the Baptist will be in the kingdom of God. So he was willing to give his life, but he saved it. Uh, he'll live forever. And he doesn't know. John the Baptist, he doesn't even know he's dead. He'll have only been dead one second when he's resurrected here in a few years, even though it was 2,000 years ago. There's no sense of time or loss of time. He doesn't know what he missed. And if I look around today, I'm not sure he's missing a whole lot. Uh, you know, uh, he'll come up, boom, just like that. Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son. Now, how did Abraham think here? He had to have been thinking something. Why is God doing this? Don't you think for three days he was saying, what's going on here? God promised me that I would have seed through Isaac as the dust of the earth and the sands of the sea, or the stars in heaven. And now God tells me to kill him. And he told me where to kill him and how to go about it. Now, what's God thinking? What's God doing? He didn't question God, didn't play 20 questions and look for answers, but I know the boy was thinking, what is going on here? The answer actually is in Hebrews 11, as to what he was thinking and what he thought God would do. He did not think that God would do what God did. He did not think 
that someone would say, Abraham, Abraham, don't touch your son. We're going to see proved here that he thought he was going to have to kill him. He, in other words, it surprised him when they told him, don't slice his throat. In Hebrews 11. You'll have it read before I can get there. <clears throat> okay, verse 17. Uh, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall your seed be called accounting or thinking or figuring out that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence also he received him in a figure or as in a type of Christ. What Abraham had figured out is that as God has sent me up there, he's going to have me kill my son, and then he's going to resurrect him so that he can be uh, the father of Israel. That's the way he figured it out. God wouldn't do he's already, He said, he's already promised me that Isaac's going to be there. So the only thing that I know is he's got to resurrect him. That's remarkable thinking. <laughs> I, I guess he put his worries and his fears somewhat to rest. I, it would still have been very, very difficult to raise that knife and your son's throat. Highly emotional, I would think. But he figured that's the answer. Paul makes it very clear that that's what Abraham was thinking. I've heard various justifications of how Abraham might have thought, but I think to me that clears it up. That he figured out, okay, that's what God must be going to do. So I'll go ahead. I'll do it. God knows what he's doing. God knows best. I think we still lack a little bit in faith where we're willing to absolutely leave our lives in God's hands. But I'll tell you what, there's lots of stories in this book about what's going to come down in the next year or two or three or five or six or eight or, you know, next few years. Certainly in the next decade. I think most of this will have been finished. There's an awful lot coming down. And we need to be able to trust God implicitly with any and everything. And he is trying us, and he is testing us day by day as we live this life to see if we really are sincere and committed to him or not. And everything that he says. Here's our example. God has an answer. And they don't always know what it is. But Abraham had come to the point in his life where he knew God had an answer. And the one he figured out wasn't the one God used either. God stopped him instead. He said, you don't need to finish this. Uh, I know now. How, how far can we trust God? Right to the edge? Are we prepared to go all the way with whatever he tells us to do? Or where do we stop?
stories of water in there to show that, you know, his wife wouldn't, couldn't, he hesitated. I don't know whether Lot ever learned or not, but he wasn't on the same level as Abraham when it all came down and it's finished. So this man had learned something by now. Anyway, verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will see or provide. And it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Uh, we're going on a field trip some tomorrow. Some of you have already been and, and won't be going, but a few will. And I'm not sure exactly where Mount Moriah is, but if where we're going is the site of the original Jerusalem, and I'm inclined to think that it probably is, you're going to be looking somewhere there at what you see of where this happened. And the angel of the Eternal called Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, says the Eternal, that because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Who has possessed the gates of the world? the United States, and Britain, Suez Canal, Panama Canal, Cape of Good Hope, Cape Horn, all the critical areas for transportation around the world we have controlled. We're giving them up and selling them and turning them loose one by one and don't have many left. But this prophecy came to pass. And in your siege, all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. You look around the world today, and there's only one nation that you can look to to say that all nations, the whole world, has been blessed by their relationship with us. Almost without fail. Uh, through foreign aid, through help, through various things that have gone on in the last 40, 50, 60 years. Now, he said if we disobeyed, that we would become cursed, and then all nations would be cursed because of their relationship with us. And now we see the whole world economy sliding into oblivion, and the marketplace that has made them rich drying up and becoming nothing. And they're all going to stand back and wail and weep and cry when we go under because no place to sell their goods anymore. So those that have been blessed by their relationship with us are then going to have turn around and be cursed along with us because of our disobedience. That part of it isn't in here, but it did say it earlier, that he would be blessed if you obeyed and cursed if you disobeyed. But this is a joyous time here, so he's only mentioning the blessing. He's not mentioning the flip side of that coin. <coughs> so Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Uh, yeah, let's finish this. And it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, she has also born children to your brother Nahor, has his firstborn and bars his brother. 
people have named the kids strange things. Come here, hoes and bows. You're nearly as bad as George Foreman, naming all, is it Foreman? George? Yeah. Named all son and seven of his sons George. Never got them mixed up. His daughter's Georgia, or Georgette, or something like that. Anyway, and Camille, the father of Aram, you, you know, you don't have to go to these books about babies' names, do you? There's lots of stuff in the Bible you could be using. <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, and Chesed, and Hazel, and Pildash, and Jidlot, and Beth. And here, this is a veritable gold mine of nice names. And Bethuel begat Rebecca. No, that's getting a little better. These eight Milcah did bear to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose name was Reuma. She bare also Teba, and Gaham, and Thabash, and Maacah. Why is all that in there? Well, we'll pick that up tomorrow. So, no, we won't tomorrow. We'll do that Friday evening, I guess, because we, we're taking off tomorrow night. Thank you for coming.